Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Today, we get to sit down with Dr. Colin West. He is a professor of medicine and director of the Mayo Clinic program on physician well-being. We will have the opportunity to discuss the hot topics of physician burnout, mental health, and well-being solutions for physicians. This is part two of our two-part podcast series with Dr. Colin West on physician well-being and burnout. Dr. Colin West is Professor of Medicine, Medical Education, and Biostatistics at Mayo Clinic, as well as Assistant Dean for Graduate Medical Education Scholarship and Director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Curriculum for the Mayo Clinic Alix School of Medicine. Dr. West received his MD and PhD in Biostatistics from the University of Iowa, completed residency in Internal Medicine here at Mayo Clinic. He is a recipient of the Mayo Clinic Clinician Education Investigator Award, a legacy member of the Academy of Educational Excellence, and a Mayo Clinic Distinguished Educator. He is the director of the Mayo Clinic Program on Physician Well-Being and was recently named the first medical director of employee well-being for Mayo Clinic. Dr. West's research has focused on medical education and physician well-being and has been widely published in prominent journals including Lancet, JAMA, Annals of Internal Medicine, and JAMA Internal Medicine. Welcome, Dr. West. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. I want to get to how do we, now that we have a metrics or now that we appreciate there are valid surveys that can get at true well-being levels that you compare apples to apples, I want to get to what you've learned about how to make change or drive change. And and I would imagine just before you even try to metric, even the study, whether you get the study on a bad day or a good day, I mean, obviously if your N is big enough, it washes down, but it just, there's so many factors that go into this in terms of driving change. Part of it too, and we talked about different groups, but before we get to those sort of change, I have one other just personal question. As we sit here, we're all at different stages in our lives. Mm-hmm. How does age affect this? Because we hear about with the EMR, there's a certain demographic of people that are at a stage in life where they're just, I'm sick and tired of how medicine's <laughs> getting worse. It's not as good as the old days. Oh, I hate it too, though. <laughs> <laughs> and the question is, on the flip side, we have a different generation of physicians that are remarkably moving and changing and advancing the field, but they have different expectations and their stresses are different. So share with us whether ye, you know the different types of demographics we have in healthcare. How is that affecting the science that you're studying? Mm-hmm. Well, so you know what I'm going to start with. It's complicated. <laughs> yes. It's really, really interesting because in our early studies, what we found and has continued to be consistently true is well-being in the first three to five years out of training is okay. There's kind of a honeymoon period where you know it's the first real paycheck that many people have ever gotten. They're excited about their new roles. They're able to put into practice. I mean, they're never going to be in a better position education-wise than right out of training. You never know more than that at that point. Then there's a mid-career kind of lull. And then later in careers, we saw burnout levels go down. And so it looked like there was this kind of inverse J-curve sort of thing where it was that mid-career 5 to 15 or 7 to 20-year period was the kind of worst risk zone for burnout. But when you look at the data more carefully, one of the challenges there 
is we know, thinking about older physicians, for example, we know that physicians with burnout, because of more recent studies that we've done, both at Mayo and at Stanford and other places, it's con a consistent finding. As physicians get older, if they're experiencing burnout symptoms, they are more likely to retire early. And so that raises the question of, well, the physicians who are in our surveys who are later in their careers, sure. is that sort of a survivor bias? Mm -hmm. Because they're the ones who, while they weren't dealing with as much burnout, and so they stuck around, mm -hmm. whereas the folks that were more distressed, especially since in medicine, you actually do generally, by 15 or 20 years in your career, we do have the financial flexibility often to walk away. I'm not saying it's advisable. I'm not, I'm hoping I don't, or none of, of yeah. us needs to be in that position because this really should be a meaningful, fulfilling career. And our patients need us to be in this role for decades if possible. But you have the financial means to be able to walk away and do something else if you really feel like you need to. And so some of this uh, has not been well studied. The people who leave medicine later in their careers, what are their motivations? Mm -hmm. And I think for some of those people, the motivation is, you know what, as you mentioned, whether it's the EMR, which, you know, gets labeled as the boogeyman, you know, Halloween was yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's the monster that drove me out of medicine kind of thing. But the EMR is actually only part of the issue. But for some people, whatever it is that leads to their distress in medicine, maybe they're leaving at an older age. Younger people may not actually be more satisfied. Could it be that they actually feel trapped because mm -hmm. they're so invested in their careers that for the first three to five years, they couldn't possibly walk away because they've got student loan debts to pay off. They've got to see if this career is going to go someplace. And they're not just going to walk away after, I mean, think about how many years go into training for just a routine, four years of med school, and then three to 10 years of residency and fellowship training. I mean, those poor pediatric neurosurgeons with <laughs> 10 years of training after medical school, you're not gonna walk away from that unless you are really, really pushed in the first few years. You've put too much into it. So the age piece, the generational piece, all of that's kind of complex and, and nuanced. We also see, to a point that you alluded to, that younger generations with the EMR in particular, they've never known anything different. And so they may be more accepting of things that previous generations won't tolerate. The idea that I have to be trained to treat the computer mm -hmm. as opposed to my IT adapting to support my needs is something, and I'll just say personally, it's something I really struggle with because I feel like technology should support my interface with the patient. I think there's a younger generation that often is just used to the computer being part of the dynamic. And it doesn't mean that they're providing bad care because they figured out a way to integrate that into the relationship. I'm not that good at that. I wanna be focused on my patient. I want the computer to be in the background elevating me. EMRs have not been designed to do that. We know we've done studies of the usability of the EMR. It's pretty poor. It's a, a fascinating study that Ted Melnick at Yale partnered with us on, where we looked at a system usability score of various technologies, including the EMR, based on benchmarks. And at the top of the scale are things like buying something from Amazon. 
Amazon makes it really, really user-friendly, probably too user-friendly mm. for you to purchase things. It gets a very high usability score. They're smart. They also have a market incentive with competition to be really good at what they do. Microsoft Excel gets a pretty low score. It's kind of in the 50s on a zero to 100 scale. And most people, unless they are really, really skilled at Excel, kind of have this experience of, yeah, it helps you manage simple tables, but as soon as I get into pivot tables and multidimensional kinds of things, it's kind of a mess. So it gets pretty low scores. Well, the electronic medical record scores pretty much like Excel. Mm -hmm. No surprise to any of us in practice. But the remarkable thing about the EMR is I think what a lot of physicians react to is this idea that there doesn't seem to be a lot of motivation to improve it to serve our relationship with our patients. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets older generations, I think, frustrated because they may not be anti-technology, but what they see is, oh, okay, well, you're gonna tell me I either have to type all of my notes. I didn't know I was a stenographer when I was going to medical school. I didn't realize that the, the course that I should have been taking in college to be successful was typing, or I'm gonna have to train my translator through the electronic voice dictation to understand my voice and my enunciation and things like that. And that's a whole electronic process. Why can't I just dictate and have a human being transcribe what I'm writing? And I'll give Mayo credit there. They've maintained that in the background, maybe not advertised a ton. And I do a hybrid in my practice. For my new ME consult notes, I still dictate that entire note. And I have a human being behind the scenes that is able to do that. And it works quite well for me. I do not like this idea of having a template and I'm going to click through and pre-populate a note, which is kind of what we get pushed to do. But for my return visits, where a lot of it is kind of the same stuff as my intake, I will cut and paste and make three or four sentences of typed editions as kind of my compromise. Generationally, the response to that, I think, is a little bit different. So that's a little bit about the sure. age part of things. Sure. I definitely think that sense of control or make things better where, I mean, we are daily living our lives trying to make the lives better of people around us. And when there's something like the EMR or about billing or something else yeah. in our life that you can't make better, right? it becomes a, a, a vice that can, can affect the well-being of a physician. And I just want to jump in on that just really quickly because that is actually one of the well-documented drivers of either burn, burnout or well-being. So Christina Maslock, Michael Leiter, and others are sort of the pioneers in the modern burnout understanding, not just in medicine, but in job roles in general, You know, working on this since the late 70s and, and early 1980s. And they've cast drivers of burnout into what they called areas of work life. And we've already talked about workload, but another one of those is sense of control. Mm. And if you have agency, a little bit of autonomy, some sense of control over your experience at work, that promotes well-being. And I think that's a particular issue for physicians in medicine, because if you think about what we're trained to do, we're trained to be leaders of teams, implement plans, problem solve in our clinical work. But in everything outside of our clinical work, like our documentation and our schedules and all these other things, we're told what to do. We're, told what to do. Mm -hmm. and we're 
often not engaged in any of those processes. Yeah. And when we're not content with that, there's a fine line between advocating for necessary improvements and being labeled as a troublemaker or an elitist, or this physician thinks they're bigger than the team. When a lot of what it is is this disconnect between, well, wait a minute, in one role, I'm supposed to be controlling what happens, but then in every other role, you're telling me, stay, get in line and stay there. Stay in your lane. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I wonder how much contributes, especially talking about the age factor and kind of what you were talking about, that mid-career is the biggest risk factor for burnout. That strikes me, especially from where I am in life, as the time where people have young children, you have mortgages, you have Other lots conflicts. of all kinds lots of life of things. Conflicts. And so then that, that gets into the whole work-life balance discussion mm -hmm. and how that equates with burnout and what that even is. Is work-life balance a thing? I hate that term and right. everybody wants me to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that fit in? And is what is that with burnout? So there's a very close relationship. Yeah. The term we prefer to use in our work is work-home interference. Work-home interference, mm -hmm. um, work-life integration, or I've heard. Work -life integration or work-life integration. Work-life fit. And different people respond to the terms differently. They, they hit them in different ways. Yeah, but it's um, all. You're absolutely right that there's, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. There's a major generational shift about, mm -hmm. you know, the old leave it to beaver kind of stereotype of dad goes off to work and that's his primary responsibility and mom takes care of everything else, if people are content with that in their role, I have no quarrel Great. with it. If yep. they're happy, they're happy. Yep. But I think increasingly we're seeing generationally a shift to much more diversification of responsibilities where people want to be more engaged in every aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. And medicine has been slow to accommodate that it is going to have to get over this because people are gonna vote with their feet, no question about it. But it has been a challenge for medicine. I think the other challenge with that that we've also alluded to is professionalism in medicine can sometimes be used both by ourselves and by our practices as a weapon. Danielle Ofri has written about this. She wrote a piece in the New York Times about professionalism being weaponized. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is as the physician, our sort of oath of conduct, this idea that patients are the only thing that matters, we all subscribe to that. Right. But what does that mean? That we How don't do have a life execute? outside of that. Well, that can be interpreted as meaning you drop everything at all times and you don't have another life mm -hmm. because your life is consumed by medicine. And again, generationally, if I stereotype and overgeneralize, 50, 70 years ago, maybe that aligned with some social structures and roles. Now, big jarring disconnect. And I think sometimes the older generation disparages the younger generation by misunderstanding these objectives and saying things like, well, the younger generation is less professional. They don't understand what it takes to be committed to medicine. It's nonsense. It's a different definition that I think is also rooted in a better understanding at times that I'm better for my patients when I've secured my own oxygen mask first. Who on an airplane has ever complained or said, oh, 
the airline says I need to secure my own oxygen mask before assisting <laughs> others. How dare they suggest I be so self-centered? <laughs> that would be selfish. No one, I've never heard anyone complain about that. And yet in medicine, this idea that, well, wait a minute, I need to make sure that I can bring my best self to work. Self-care is important, and I need a learning and working environment that honors my need to be my best self. Well, we're often made to feel like, well, but that's not putting your patients first, doctor. Mm -hmm. Remember your professional values. Mm -hmm. And that's what Dr. Ofri was talking about in her piece in the New York Times, about that can be actually used as a lever or a cudgel to keep physicians giving more and more of themselves, even beyond the point that they can't recover to be able to do that. And you know, the last thing I'll say about this is context for that matters as well. It would be one thing if physicians were struggling and they were working 35 hours a week and lots of free time and batting patient requests off all of the time and, oh, well, you know, that in-basket, eh, it came in after hours, it's not important. The reality is that physicians are working not adjusted for reduced FTE 55 hours a week on average nationally. And because we have so many physicians that are reduced FTE, that prorates to about a 65 or closer probably to a 70 hour work week yeah. for the average physician in this country. It is one of, if not the highest work hour professions that's out there. And I'm not sure that those work hours fully reflect work effort in the sure. current area because I don't know that we're fully accounting for things like nights and weekends doing in-basket in the electronic medical exactly. record mm -hmm. that resonates probably with all of us. Mm -hmm. Well said. You commented, so work, the workload itself is a meaningful driver. You also commented that lack of control is a meaningful driver. Highlight for us what other pieces haven't we talked about already in this conversation that would be meaningful drivers as we look for solutions? Yeah, I think so... Uh, a couple that we've talked about already, we talked about values alignment. Medicine should deliver values and the values that we experience in our practices should align with the values we bring to the table personally. And when you work in an environment where you can't live out your core values as an individual, that leads to moral injury, a disconnect, that is very distressing. And so solutions generate themselves when you think about that, Mayo has an advantage there. There's also a little bit of attention. We know, for example, that employees will talk sometimes about, well, Mayo's got core values. Is Mayo living those core values as consistently as it used to? And there's sometimes a perception that maybe that's under a little bit of strain. The fact that Mayo has such strong core values gives it an opportunity to be able to tap into those. We choose to work at Mayo because we find that those values resonate. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a fair thing to say, most of the physicians who work at Mayo, especially if they chose to work in private practice, could have far more lucrative careers. I'm a general internist, the gap wouldn't be as big as it might be for an ophthalmologist, especially a surgical ophthalmologist. But you make a choice to work here because you're buying into a bigger mission. Mm -hmm. There are also other reasons like working with learners and being involved in an academic and scholarly environment and the kinds of patients that you'd like to be able to help and bring that expertise to bear. A lot of things go into that. But that values alignment is really, really important. A place like Mayo has an opportunity to leverage its advantage because we are such a values aligned organization, but we can't take it for granted. Sure. We have to 
be careful with that. Sense of community is really important. Medicine's a team sport. The pandemic has challenged this because we've all had to be isolated. I mean, the idea two years ago that we could sit in a room and have a conversation like this, not possible. Mm -hmm. Now with relatively low infection transmission rates and the fact that we are all vaccinated and boosted and, and all the rest of it, we can, with some distance between us, feel pretty comfortable being able to actually be together again. And a lot of physicians and a lot of healthcare systems, I don't think quite realized before the pandemic how critical that sense of community and yeah. connectedness is. That's also aligned with other, not quite synonymous terms, but related terms like belonging and inclusion. So the fact that a place like Mayo gives voice to equity, inclusion, and diversity, for example. We need to continue to execute and improve those things because that's how we build a coherent community where everyone feels like, oh yeah, I'm part of a family that really wants me. I belong to this community. While at the same time, respecting people's individualism. That's a tricky balance. And fairness and respect is important. And I think that's a pretty obvious one. If you're at work and you don't feel like things are fair around you and you are disrespected on a regular basis, that's an environment that does not promote well-being. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna thrive in that environment. So mm -hmm. again, I've said many times, learning and working environments within which people can thrive and flourish. From an education standpoint, that means moving away from dinosaur models of blame and shame. The traditional, and again, I'm gonna stereotype, the surgical training model of we are gonna break you down so that we can rebuild you in the proper image. It's not constructive. And people can grow and actually grow better when they're treated with respect and fairness. Mm -hmm. We've learned, and there are analogies here for well-being from the quality world. If you think back to the IOM report to Air is Human, published about 20 years ago, prior to that point, I was in med school in the 90s, M&Ms, for patient safety reviews, which were designed to promote safety, were really exercises in humiliation more mm -hmm. often than not. That was my experience. Basically, you're gonna be raked over the coals so that neither you nor any witness to this experience will ever even think about making that mistake again. But then to Air as Human came along and said, wait a minute, the vast majority of people in healthcare are dedicated, committed, passionate people who want the best possible outcomes for the patients they care about. Yeah. Do you think they're intentionally making mistakes? It's a system that doesn't prevent them from making human errors. Yeah. We need to think about that in well-being as well. It's not about, to the, to the comment earlier about you know resilience and self-care and stress management, and I want to come back to that briefly because I think it's important not to toss that out. Mm -hmm. It's still highly relevant. But the historical model in well-being was sort of like the old way of thinking about quality and patient safety. Mm. Individual responsibility. You need to be better. There's an analogy with to err as human to say, wait a minute. Yes, we have a responsibility to be professional. If we think about quality and patient safety, yeah, I've got to be the best physician I can be. I need to have the right technical skills. I need to build the right knowledge base. But I should expect to work in an environment that's gonna protect my patients and me from human frailty. Yeah. Yeah. And for well-being, the same kind of idea, 
of I should work in a system that allows me to be my best self while I bring my best self into that system. So the sixth of these areas of work life that I mentioned uh, is reward, which can be both intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic is really sense of meaning. I talk about the MVPs of well-being, meaning, values, and purpose. It's kind of aligned with this intrinsic reward. What is it about working in the profession that makes us feel good, make us feel like we're making a difference? That's intrinsic reward. Extrinsic reward is kind of the rest of are we appreciated, are we valued, are we recognized? That's not just compensation. So we want to be compensated fairly. That's true of all healthcare professions. And you know the work that everyone does should be valued and salary and benefits is part of that. Mm-hmm. But we also need to work in environments where we are genuinely appreciated. You know, I have a colleague, she's written a book. Jillian Horton is a, a Canadian physician. She wrote a book about well-being experiences and, and things like that. And she's coined a phrase, muffin rage, which is this idea, and you mentioned, you know, pizza on Fridays. Well, her thing is, we're going to show appreciation for our staff by bringing in a bunch of muffins that we drop off in a conference room. Come pick that up in between your patients. We appreciate you. And it can be really well-intentioned. And we have these things happen at Mayo, too. But when it's the only thing you do and it isn't aligned with other interventions to try and improve the working environment, it starts to ring hollow. Yeah. You know, here's a cookie. It's Stop like a complaining. That isn't sincere. Right. It's, it's, it's so misguided. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had anyone quote Taylor Swift on your podcast, but band aids don't fix bullet holes. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what this is about. And muffins, you know, what uh, Dr. Horton coined was the phrase muffin rage because she said <laughs> that's the feeling a healthcare professional has when they're experiencing distress and the solution is here, have a muffin. Have a muffin. That's kind of what what reward is about. And you can see from that framework, already solutions start to generate themselves. How is this proposed solution, like a more flexible work schedule, how is that going to align with areas of work life that we know promote well-being because of the foundational work of people like Drs. Maslach and Leiter? Mm -hmm. Well, it aligns with control and flexibility, uh, control and autonomy. So it fits into that category. What about fair salary and benefits? Making sure that the package is right. Making sure, you know, hot topic at Mayo, especially for our allied health. Parking privileges. Mm -hmm. How do we honor people's work efforts and show that reward? That's part of the reward category. And of course, organizations are incredibly complex and you can't give everyone everything all at once. But employees need to feel like there is attention to these drivers to provide an environment that is as optimal as it can be, as opposed to an environment that doesn't give any attention to these issues. And that's when employees start to feel used. Like, oh, I'm a means to a financial end. And that's where values-aligned organizations have an advantage. Because if they're genuine, they can tap into those values and say, no, we're all here because of these core values. As employees, you demonstrate that every day. As leaders, we lead through those examples and they need to be intentional and they need to look in the mirror and check themselves to make sure that the policies remain aligned with those value sets. I want to ask a little bit about 
personal responsibility, yeah. resilience. Like you said, we talk about that a lot with resident education, mm -hmm. grit, all this kind of stuff. So where's the line? So I'm gonna go back to the analogy with quality actually, because I actually think it's really instructive. So Deming has been quoted as saying that 85% of failures in systems are failures in process, not failures of individuals. Wow. And so he talks about fix the workplace, not the worker. I think well-being is probably a pretty similar figure. Most of this is about our environment. Some of it is about what's our individual responsibility. The challenge with the conversation is historically, people are jaded by this because historically, the easier solutions have been the stereotypical mandatory Saturday morning stress management program. Mm -hmm. And that's not a joke, by the way. I gave a talk a number of years ago where I said that as a joke, <laughs> mandatory Saturday morning, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, did you notice as soon as you said that our administrator left? Because we had that two weeks ago and it was mandatory. Haven't seen that happen at Mayo, but it's out there. This idea that, well, we're not gonna fix the environment, but we're gonna tell you that you've gotta be tougher. That breeds a sense of cynicism. And yeah, and this is kind of the anti-yoga mentality that comes up. The way I approach this is we know that bringing your best self to work is important. How you do that is different for every person. And for some people, yoga, meditation, gratitude exercises are a really key part of them feeling like, you know what, I'm centered and I'm gonna be able to bring my best self to work. And I don't want to denigrate those experiences. They're important for those individuals. But we also have to recognize that those are not gonna resonate with everybody. Mm -hmm. And so when it becomes a Band-Aid that's put on for everybody, people get a little bit edgy about that. I do think that that, if I borrow from Deming, the 15% of the individual piece of things, attention to self-care, we need to all think about what does that look like for us? Is it playing tennis? Is it knitting? Is it going to church? Is it connecting with friends outside of medicine? Is it yoga? For most of us, there's something. Because otherwise, uh, work, it'll behave according to Boyle's gas law. It'll expand to fill whatever container you allow it to. Hmm. That's just the nature of medical practice. So there is a little bit of personal responsibility to draw that boundary and when forced, Contain it. Say no, contain yeah. it. Recognize that you have other spheres of your being that you have to honor. Yeah. So that individual piece, I think, is always going to be part of it. But we also need to recognize the data behind where healthcare professionals are coming into this. So we've already talked about the rigors of medical training. So the idea that someone could be an ophthalmologist and not have gone through all of that training, those years of dedication, and not have grit is, I think, insulting, actually. Mm -hmm. Physicians already have very high levels of grit. We've studied nationally resilience, despite having the higher burnout rates that we've already talked about the physicians have. Physicians have higher resilience than the general employed US population. So we're starting from a position of strength on average. That doesn't mean every physician is strong in resilience. And there are some whose grit has been eroded because of whatever else has been going on in their lives or in their practices. So we do have a personal obligation 
and I'd like to think that our practices would help us with this to maintain or even strengthen our resilience, our grit, other individual contributions. We also have a personal responsibility to not wallow in negativity. And I'm not talking about toxically positive, you know, everything's great even though everything's on fire kind of stuff. We can be realistic about that, but we need to be able to tap into the many good things that are around us. We have incredible colleagues. We have great patients. And we have an ability to help people that is sort of a unique privilege mm. in medicine. And I think we can talk about those things in a way that's authentic and doesn't excuse that we have improvements we need to make as well. But we also have to recognize that that's not where the bulk of the solution is going to come from. Mm -hmm. And the other 85% is about our responsibility for our environments and our systems. And that's not all about our local leaders. Some of it's national policy change. Some of it's about deep-seated disparities across medicine and medical practice that are outside of even Mayo's control. We can recognize that, and sometimes even just acknowledging it removes some of the cynicism that individual physicians will have with the response of, ah, here you are layering it on me again. You're saying, I've got to fix this problem. I use the analogy of canary in the coal mine. It's like saying, we need a stronger canary. We're not going to fix the coal mine. People don't like that because they've heard it too often over the years. And we've got to recognize, yeah, while you're trying to be the best you can be, you have that obligation. We are committed in a visible way to making sure that we're giving you an environment that will allow you to really deliver on that best self. And again, I've talked about Mayo being positioned in positive ways for this. As an organization, we actually should be uniquely positioned to establish, because of our core values, learning and working environments within which people can thrive. And I think sometimes we've done this better in education than we've done in practice because we're committed to psychological safety. We're committed to growing. We're committed to environments where people shouldn't feel humiliation and bullying and things like that. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but we're committed from a value statement to be better than that. Mm -hmm. We need to extend all of that into the practice as well. And we need to look in the mirror and be able to really assess, are we delivering on those values? That's what people expect of their organization. And where we're imperfect, let's acknowledge it, let's partner. It's another piece to this equation is individuals and organizations can partner, that fosters engagement. So I've heard leaders say, well, you make this my responsibility I can't do it without the individual coming along and agreeing to be part of the solutions that I put in place as a leader. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But did you develop those solutions with those individuals so that they're solutions that they said would benefit them? Yeah. Well, why would I do that? I'm the leader of my work group. Well, sounds let's, like a quality project. <laughs> let's think about participatory leadership. Yeah. And that fosters engagement. Engagement is part of well being. And so you start seeing. A phrase I've started using is you start seeing an upward spiral. Hmm. Sometimes people can kind of get into this toxic web of, you know, a downward spiral into continued distress and there's no hope and we can't make the practice better. I think actually people are fundamentally, at least in medicine, fundamentally forgiving, highly optimistic, actually, because we have all of the positives of our mission and our core values. People want to be part of an upward spiral. 
and leaders have to open the door to allow people to be part of that. I certainly greatly appreciate your leadership here and appreciate for all of our listeners that are from Mayo the opportunity to tap into the culture, the resources we have here, the programs in physician well-being. As we close here, any specific advice for our listeners that are not part of the Mayo Clinic or not part of systems that they easily can see a path forward or connections. Maybe they're in private practice and they're leading a clinic, or maybe they're in an organization that they just don't have an ear and they know that people around them need an upward spiral, or maybe they themselves are feeling burned out, physician well-being issues, their thermometer self-diagnosed is just not in the right place. Share just what resources, what direction, what opportunities there are for people to seek more information or guidance in steps forward. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say there is I've mentioned advantages that a place like Mayo has, but those are not unique and those don't suggest that other practices need to be at a loss. Alignment with those areas of work life that I mentioned, just being aware that you can drive well-being if you attend to a reasonable workload. Engage in sense of control. What's your reward structure, your sense of community? Are you committed to fairness and respect? Are you protecting your employees? And are you making sure that your employees are able to live out their values in their work? Are things that any practice can try to prioritize? And each individual in each group may have different degrees of heat or hot spot, if you will, for each of those different dimensions. And so talking either reflecting, self-reflecting, so you know, talking with yourself, or with your constituents if you're leading a group, you can get a sense of where do people identify needing the most help. Let's focus on those areas, but we've got a framework to guide that conversation at yeah. least, is, is really an important starting point. Additional resources that I would recommend everyone, whether you're at Mayo, elsewhere, private practice, academia, doesn't matter. The American Medical Association has what are called Steps Forward modules that allow for self-assessment of across the well-being spectrum. They also have a lot of practice efficiency modules, which are designed to remove what have been termed the hassle factors or the pebbles in the shoe in clinical practice to allow people to focus more on what's most meaningful. For most people in medicine, and I would say especially in private practice, those direct interactions with patients. And we often feel like there's noise around us, whether it's treating the electronic medical record or you know, dozens of prior auths a week or whatever it happens to be. Those steps forward modules, which were available online, if you just search AMA, well-being, bunches of stuff comes up. These are examples from other practices around the country that have implemented these changes. And they provide roadmaps and examples and templates for doing this. And then the final resource is the National Academy of Medicine has a clinician well-being repository. And they really took the mantle of a lot of work that foundationally was put together by a handful of core organizations. Mayo was a major player in this. And what the National Academy of Medicine did was consolidate all of that. They issued a nearly 400-page report on clinician well-being, and they have a website in support of that report that outlines How do you, in a pragmatic way, assess well-being in your practice? How do you think about solutions? Where do you go for resources if you've identified a particular aspect of solutions that you need to learn more about? 
Maybe it's interdisciplinary team care, something we haven't talked a ton about, but I mentioned medicine's a team sport. This is not about elevating physicians and having nurses have worse well-being or vice versa. So how do we think about this together? And the National Academy of Medicine intentionally spoke about clinician well-being, mm. not just physician well-being, yeah. recognizing it's an ecosystem in healthcare. So those are a couple of resources. And if you combine that with this general appreciation of some of the core drivers and talk either with yourself in self-reflection or with your partners, your constituents, other people in your practice or organization, you can identify where you need to put your emphasis points in a participatory way. And that allows that upward spiral to start. Well, I just want to thank you, Dr. West, for sharing. I think we could continue to go on, but it's yeah. certainly <laughs> exciting that we were able to to learn and understand the dimensions of this as it's complex, but also give hope for, for not just what we're doing as an organization, but what people can do individually. I celebrate that we've been able to do this over a couple of podcasts here to enjoy learning from you as we help our listeners. Yeah. Thank you again. And yeah. I want to thank you so much. Also, just come in, you know, as we talk about these different dimensions of life, celebrate, um, Andrea, your leadership <laughs> of God podcast, but in this way, coming in during your maternity time with a, with a, your infant here to, to celebrate being multidimensional and succeeding in what we do in all aspects of life. So thank wow. you for being a leader that way. Thank you. Thanks for letting me bring the little one here. And I feel very rejuvenated <laughs> and hopeful, truly, that there's really good work from leaders mainly like you i mean you in this field i feel very optimistic about the future so thank you so much yeah. oh, we've learned a ton you're very welcome and this is an incredible profession none of us should ever forget that yeah. and we can be each other's stewards in mm -hmm. delivering everything that this profession has to offer and that's what's on the horizon so i, I share that optimism that's why i work in this field is Fantastic. to be able to deliver on that vision. It's appreciated. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more. Mm -hmm.